I realized that just by looking up, uh, there was a wonderland of, of mystery and unseen objects and seen objects. And I was always just deeply fascinated. So from a very early age, I wanted to do something in fundamental science with a sort of astronomical or cosmological bent. I have become interested in the possibility of life uh, jumping from Earth to Mars or Mars to Earth in impact ejector. where we take the ultimate sci-fi themes found in books and movies and discuss them with the world's leading scientists, engineers and experts. This week's podcast is brought to you by our sponsors and preferred retailers, Wordery and The Book Depository. And the book whose theme we're reflecting on this week is The Black Cloud by Fred Hoyle. This is a recommended book by Richard Dawkins. It's a science fiction classic in which an immense cloud of gas enters our solar system, blocking out our sun and threatening to wipe out most of life on Earth. It's set in Britain, where a team of scientists gathers at a secret location to deal with the crisis, but as the months pass, what they learn will challenge everything they believe about the nature of life in the universe. The link to the black cloud can be found in the show notes. My name is Amy Rose, and in this episode, I have a conversation with Professor Paul Davies. Paul Davies is a theoretical physicist, cosmologist, astrobiologist, and best-selling science author of 31 books. He's published hundreds of research papers and review articles across a range of scientific fields. He is also well-known as a media personality and science popularizer in several countries. I just want to say thank you so much for joining me because, I don't know, it's really amazing to speak to an author and someone who's published 30 books and who's so far ahead of the game when it comes to this sort of research. So, Look, I'm just an ordinary bloke. <laughs> that's, uh, you're not. But, um, yeah, that's very humble of you. So, Paul, I'm just going to start off asking you, I mean, the topic is astrobiology and usually we talk about a sci-fi book, but it's even better today because I get to talk to you about your book and astrobiology and some of the chapters in your book. And I would love to talk about Demon in the Machine today. But to start with, can I ask you, well, actually, I need to say welcome and you need to say something because otherwise it will sound terrible. <laughs> so welcome to the show. Well, it's a pleasure to be on. Thank you for your interest. So, Paul, please, can you just tell us, I know that your experience um, and your expertise and your history is vast. I don't even know where to start when I was writing your bio. So um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got to where you are, and then what is astrobiology, please? <laughs> well, I was uh, born a physicist uh, many decades ago, <laughs> a previous millennia. Okay. I never wanted to do anything other than something like astrophysics, even before I learned what the word meant. And so mm. from a very early age, I was interested in space, the sky, stars, invisible particles, things like that. And people often ask why 
And I think part of the reason is I grew up in post-war London, where it was really, really boring. There was a huge amount of austerity, <laughs> much to do, and yeah. somehow I lost myself in the great uh, cosmos. It, it was really a void of imagination, and I, I realized that just by looking up, uh, there was a wonderland of, of mystery and unseen objects and seen objects, and I was always just deeply fascinated. So from a very early age, I wanted to do something in fundamental science with a sort of astronomical or cosmological bent. But the biology bit came much later, uh, and really I can trace my serious interests in astrobiology to a conference held in Cambridge in 1983 convened by Martin Rees, who subsequently became the Astronomer Royal and the President of the Royal Society and the Master of Trinity College, all wonderful positions. And this was a, a conference called From Matter to Life. And that really says it all because physicists deal with matter, uh, just simple particles, atoms, for example, and biologists deal with life. And life is made up of atoms, but somehow between the atom and the organism, some sort of magic kicks in and we get mm. wonderful properties of living things. And I was always deeply intrigued by that connection. What is the pathway from matter to life and how are we to understand living things in terms of physics? And that's been with me ever since that particular conference. So that's really, in a nutshell, how I got into this. So astrobiology is the merging of physics and biology together. Yes, physics, chemistry, astronomy, mathematics and biology, yes. It sort of covers a multitude of sins, really. And that, wow. all, incidentally, wasn't coined until uh, 1996. And it's a curious episode there because this also propelled me into the field because I've been dabbling around a little bit. I was living and working in Australia at the time and uh, have become interested in the possibility of life uh, jumping from Earth to Mars or Mars to Earth in impact ejector. And let me explain that. From time to time, the Earth takes a hit from a comet or an asteroid with enough force to splash rocks all around the solar system and some of those rocks go to Mars and vice versa. There are Mars rocks that come to Earth. We have several here in Arizona State University. And so I figured in the early 90s that life could hitch a ride on these rocks, mm. spread between Earth and Mars and Mars and Earth. Everybody laughed at me. He uh, <laughs> on me. And all this was changed by none other than Bill Clinton, President Clinton, who stood on the White House lawn in August 1996 and announced that NASA had a Mars meteorite with some evidence for fossilized microorganisms in it. That turned out to be wrong in the end, but it electrified the world's press, and suddenly the scientific community was talking about uh, the possibility of the transfer of uh, organisms between planets in this impact ejector. And so that, you know, uh, ha having been laughed at all along, uh, I think I had the last laugh on that one. And so shortly after that, NASA created its Astrobiology Institute. Uh, and so this episode, even though it was a bit wrongheaded, served to 
really cement astrobiology as an academic discipline, and it's flourishing today. And so I guess you're curious about the origins of life. I feel like there's a common theme throughout the books that you've written, and one of the terms that I keep hearing is panspermia. Could you explain that with reference to the origins of life? Yes. Uh, so first of all, I should say that nobody has a clue how life begins. <laughs> uh, it, it's, the pathway from matter to life is impenetrable in our present level of understanding. And the problem is that even the simplest living thing on Earth is so immensely complex that it clearly didn't spring into being all in one amazing chemical reaction. There must have been a long pathway from just a mishmash of chemicals to the first autonomous living thing. But we don't know what that pathway was or whether it was a series of sudden jumps. We know very little about it. And so some people feel that the transition from non-life to life is so unlikely that we would assume that life on Earth somehow came from somewhere else. And so the idea of panspermia is that microorganisms, only microorganisms, can drift around the universe uh, between planets I've already mentioned, but maybe between star systems. And so once life gets going somewhere, it spreads everywhere. So panspermia just means seeds everywhere. It's a very ancient idea. It goes back 2,000 years to 1,000 years that life might have just spread that way. And it's been sort of resurrected a few times over the last few decades. So in its current form, I think we recognize that naked microbes wafting throughout a space aren't going to fare very well because of the high radiation load. But cocooned inside a rock, it's more plausible. And so this idea of panspermia has been sort of on again, off again throughout my career. It's back on again, and I'm actually hosting a panspermia workshop here at Arizona State University in January. So we'll find out. Will that be recorded or accessible to the rest of the world or just? Uh, Well, it's a closed meeting in the sense it's invitation only. Uh, It's partly to revisit the subject, but partly to determine whether there is an aspect of panspermia research that should be funded. So this is a joint workshop with the Breakthrough uh, Initiatives. And uh, I think uh, probably there'll be a report coming out of it, but it certainly won't be uh, webcast or anything like that, I'm afraid. Oh, bummer. Well, when you do, or if you do, seeing as it could be a big interest point coming up, especially in 2020, if you're having this closed meeting, it's probably going to trickle on to other events. So if you ever do, please share it with me so that I can share it with the listeners. Be sure to do that, yes. So we talked about the origins of life briefly, and we don't actually have any idea, which is why there needs to be more research into it. And we'll get an understanding of who we are and what we are better if we understand the origins. But let's talk about Demon in the Machine, which is your latest book. And I want to understand a little bit more about what is life. Now, we're always asked this question, where do we come from? What are we doing here? But can you elaborate a little bit on that chapter? I think we all recognize that living systems are in a class apart, that they do Mm. things which are really very special, very peculiar, 
that non-living things don't do. And you can make a whole list of their peculiarities, but I think we all recognize that when you see a, a living organism, even a microbe, you know, poking about as if it knows what it's doing, this is mm. really something truly exceptional. The question is how to capture that in some rigorous scientific way. And my approach to this is really the following, that if you go to a physics department and ask this question, what is life, you'll be told something about molecular shapes and reaction rates and entropy and energy and how things connect together and form complex structures and so forth. If you go to a biology department and say, what is life? It's a very different type of narrative. You're going to be given a description of life in terms of things like encoded information and signals and translation and transcription. And these days, increasingly, we talk about gene editing. Mm. Uh, you can now take genomes and edit them with technology and create your own genomes. Uh, and so it's all in the language of information uh, and information processing. And so we biologists tend to think of, say, the living cell as a gigantic information processing system, gigantic in the sense of the amount of information being processed. So it's not just, I think everybody knows that your DNA is like an instruction manual for life, but it's not just the DNA. Genes form networks, information flows around these networks, they can switch each other on and off, and so they form complex patterns of information flow. Cells signal each other, organisms signal each other, and all this extends right onto a planetary scale. So my colleagues here at ASU have tracked uh, the biochemical interactions right across the whole planet, and I like to say that the biosphere was the original World Wide Web. And so in my view, when I say what is life, I see it in terms of its software, not its hardware. Mm. A very important distinction. Wow. If you imagine a computer, you say, well, Windows seems like a miracle to me. Well, it does, actually. Uh, it is a, a Photoshop <laughs> or whatever it is. How does that work? What is that? What's going on there? You wouldn't be very impressed if I told you, well, if you take the back off the computer and you know, look carefully, you'll find some silicon in there. And there's bits of copper and it's complicated patterns and we don't quite know the full details but it's got something to do with that you know that that's not the right answer that's the stuff mm -hmm. of the computer you know that to explain windows you have to talk to a software engineer and in the same way to mm -hmm. life you've got to think in terms of information patterning and software and the big mystery about the origin of life is how did hardware just mere molecules write its own software how can molecules write code that's the big mystery and it does take some time for anything to happen <laughs> ever. So it probably took, I mean, for evolution, I mean, we're talking, I don't know how many million years for us to go from apes to our current form. Well, I can but tell to you. Go, oh, really? How long? <laughs> well, of course, it depends on your definition of apes. But you can okay. go back and look at the divergence between, say, humans and monkeys. I may have got this number a bit wrong, but I think six million years, something like that. And But if you take the broader group of primates, it's going back further, maybe as far as 20 million years. But you know, the transition we're talking about, and this is a really important point, is the transition from non-life to life. And even mm. if you can't help us there. So Darwin gave us this 
wonderful explanation for life on Earth as to how over billions of years it has evolved from simple microbes to the complexity and richness of the biosphere we see today in terms of variation and selection. And all that works uh, wonderfully well. It's a wonderful explanation. But he didn't explain how life got going in the first place. In fact, he said mm. in a letter to a friend that one might as well speculate about the origin of matter. So he didn't want to be drawn on how life actually started. And the problem about evolution is that it explains what happens once life gets going, but it can't really explain how you go from non-life to life. That's a totally different concept. And we don't know how long that took. We do know that the oldest traces of life on Earth, which are to be found in Western Australia and the Pilbara, I was just there about a month ago. These ancient rocks are about three and a half billion years old, and they have uh, traces, quite distinctive traces now have been found of early life. So that's three and a half billion years. The Earth itself is only four and a half billion years old. So life on Earth extends back quite a long way. And it may well have existed before three and a half billion years, but the traces have been erased, I'm afraid. So some people say, well, life got going on Earth pretty quickly once it became suitable. But quickly in this context means, you know, hundreds of millions of years. And so we really don't know whether the transition took, you know, 10 years, a thousand years, a million years, a hundred million years, or indeed whether life on Earth came from somewhere else. And so the answer to how long does it take to turn non-life into life is we have absolutely no idea. And it you can't put one limit on that. The universe itself is only 13.8 billion years old. So we know life must have arisen in that period of time. But it could well have taken uh, two or three billion years uh, and formed someone mm. and come here. Uh, we really don't know the answers to these questions. So if we may actually be quite a young planet compared yeah. to yes, all we the are. other planets uh, out yeah, there. The, the, the solar system is about a third as old as the universe. So there were stars mm. and planets around billions of years before our solar system even existed. So that leads me to a little bit <laughs> something off topic, but if there's another planet out in another solar system that's literally billions of years older than us, then their technology would be billions of years ahead of us. Well, so the leap you see you're making because <laughs> uh, uh, it's so I've said that we haven't a clue about how well, not much of a clue, about going from non-life to life. But once life gets going, we have a really mm. good idea of how it has evolved over billions of years. But we still can't work out, even though we know the process that Darwin in evolution, we still can't work out how long would it take if you have a planet with microbes for complex life to appear, let alone intelligent life and let alone technological civilizations. One day we may be able to work that out, but we certainly can't do that at the moment. So the situation is really like this. Imagine that you had another planet somewhere out there in the galaxy uh, where life got going exactly the same time as it did on Earth, mm. May the first or something, three and a half billion years ago. And then away it goes, it evolves. Now, the chances of these two planets paralleling the evolutionary story step by step over billions of years, it's just infinitesimal. So one of these mm. two planets is going to get ahead of the other by some enormous factor. 
And so if we do find that there's life on a planet that formed the same time as Earth, uh, it's, uh, it could have a technological civilization that had been around for hundreds of millions of years, uh, if we can imagine such a thing, or it could be that it's stuck at the level of microbes. It's just not going to... Yeah, evolution simply has too many accidents in it. There's too much contingency for you to be mm. able to say that there's a, a roadmap. The one thing biologists are insistent on is that evolution, nature, can't look ahead. It's not the future is foreordained. It's not that once you've got life, inevitably you're going to get four-legged creatures or two-legged creatures or brains or anything like that ever, let alone mm. a certain period of time. It's all a matter of accident, of happenstance, of selection. And so whilst you can maybe make a case that there's a general trend towards greater and greater complexity, you can't fill in the details to the level that you were hinting at. Uh, so, no, uh, but we could well imagine that there was life on a planet that started uh, two billion years before Earth even existed and has had plenty of time uh, to evolve uh, far beyond what life on Earth has. We have no evidence for that, of course, but we mm. can speculate that it might be out there. Yeah, it's hard to find evidence <laughs> in a lot of these areas, actually. But we, yes, speculating is actually healthy. We can bracket this because the lowliest form of life will be a microbe that you might find on Mars or in the plume coming out of the moon Enceladus, which is a moon of Saturn that people are very excited by. So, you know, just one humble microbe. But if it was life, but not as we know it, then that would make the case that life does form rather readily. If you find two samples of life in the solar system, surely it can't be that hard to make. You will find it all around the universe. That's at, at the sort of low end. And at the extreme end is SETI, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, which is looking for technological civilizations out there in the galaxy that it would be much easier to detect from a distance if there was some very advanced technology that is engaged in astro-engineering or is sending out powerful radio messages or something. And then there's all the bits in between, which is much harder. Uh, how would you detect uh, trees on a planet uh, 50 light years away? You know, it's a very difficult thing to do. But the microbe nearby and the big technological civilization farther away, those are the easy things to search for. And, of course, people are searching. Mm. And we don't really, well, we haven't really found any life on other planets as far as I know. Correct, yes. But what sort of planets are we looking for? What do we need? What does life as we know it need? And should we be looking at the planets close to us or should we be looking elsewhere? Or There's certainly a lot of interest in finding life within the solar system for the simple reason that we can go there. We can send spacecraft mm -hmm. to our neighbouring planets and have done. And the media tends to report Mars exploration as if it is dedicated to trying to find life on Mars. And actually, nothing can mm. be further from the truth. The only time that NASA, the US Space Agency, has conducted a biological experiment on another planet was when uh, it sent two spacecraft to Mars in 1976 and obtained some ambiguous evidence that there might be life in the in the surface uh, dust of Mars. Uh, they've never done it since. So 
a lot of uh, spacecraft that are sent to Mars uh, are investigating whether in the remote past the conditions might have been congenial for life or something, but nobody's actually gone back to look for life as such. Mm. Uh, in my view, that's a serious oversight, but there are no plans to do that, no plans to put a biology experiment on a Mars probe and uh, see if there's anything living there now. So there's a chance we might find it there. There's also a chance I mentioned the moon Enceladus. So this is an icy moon in the outer part of the solar system. It goes around Saturn. It's got cracks in its icy crust. And spewing up those cracks are gases that are known to contain organic molecules. Now, organic doesn't necessarily mean from living things. It just means complex carbon molecules. But it's not impossible that under that icy crust of Enceladus, where there is liquid water, there might be some microbial form of life and that the washed up remains of that might be contained in uh, these plumes. And so there are plans to fly to Enceladus, fly through the plume and sample that material in the hope that that may provide evidence for life. So I'm talking about two uh, searches within the solar system where we can sort of get at it directly. Much harder is how would you find life on a planet, say, 100 light years away? And then you're sort of stuck with two possibilities. One is, I've already mentioned, SETI, that maybe life there has evolved to the point of technology, of technological civilization, and then you'd see some sort of techno-signature, as we call it, some evidence for large-scale engineering. And if you ask me, well, what do I mean? Imagine if you are an alien being a hundred light years away and looking at Earth through a very powerful instrument, would you see evidence of intelligent life on Earth? And you would, actually. You'd see the pattern of night and day, what you'd see is uh, the way the the Earth is lit up at night in a very strange way. Uh, you might, if you had seriously powerful instruments, see the Great Wall of China or the pyramids or, so, or signs of agriculture. Those sorts of things would show up, and so you could deduce that there was intelligent life here. Could we do that for planets as uh, far away as that? Well, in principle, we could. And the next generation of telescopes is going to have the capability of looking for chemicals in the atmospheres of extrasolar planets. So these are planets going around other stars. And if they have life on them, there may be telltale signs in the atmosphere. Very, very difficult, very challenging to do that observation, but it's being planned. And so there is a possibility that we could get indirect evidence for life on distant planets through the impact that that life would have on its atmosphere. But this is still really quite some years away. Can you tell me a little bit about as well, and this is a a bit of a side question, sorry. There's one chapter in your book called The Consciousness Puzzle, Mm. and I would love to hear about that because it's I know it's not on the astrobiology path but uh, well maybe it is maybe it isn't but can you tell us a bit about that consciousness puzzle well it is connected with life only in the sense that so far the only intelligent systems we know are living systems or if you count computers well they're made by living systems we know of no uh, non-living system that has spontaneously become intelligent and so 
there is a connection. I like to say there are three great origins mysteries that, that keep me awake at night. Uh, one is the origin of the universe, the other is the origin of life, and the third is the origin of consciousness. And extraordinarily enough, the origin of the universe is the one we best understand. We have a really good grasp of what went on in the first split second after the Big Bang that gave rise to the universe we know and love. And that's largely because everything was simple then. It's become more complex since. The origin of life we've been talking about, and I think I've, I hope I've convinced you that we haven't solved that problem yet. We're sort of hot on the trail, uh, but we don't actually know because the system is so complex, how non-life turned into life. When it comes to consciousness, we don't even know how to frame the question, let alone mm. write an answer. We really are almost completely in the dark. We can't answer the question, uh, what does it take for a system to be conscious? Obviously, it's got to be sort of complex in some way. But if you say, well, what's inside my head is a complex network of electrochemical processes, easy to say that, and that bestows consciousness upon me. But what about the nas national grid, for example? There's, you know, complex electrical processes, at least, it's yeah. around the grid. Is that conscious? We wouldn't normally think so. So somehow we feel there's something a bit special about what goes on in brains, but we can't put our finger on exactly what that is. So what I've done in the book is I've looked at some recent thinking about that. One example of which I think is very promising, which is that it clearly has something to do with networks, electrical networks, signals going around, information flowing around networks, but something in the network architecture, the way things are wired together, and in particular the existence of various sorts of feedback loops and so on, seems to be getting close to what is going to generate consciousness. Now, it still leaves unexplained what some people, what philosophers would call the hard problem of consciousness, which is it's not enough to have a system that leads to rational behavior. We would like also to know why is it that, that I, when I look at the color red, I have a sensation of redness, which is quite different from the sensation of greenness or the sound of a bell, or the taste of salt. You know, all these mm. philosophers call these qualia, all these things are very distinctive to me. They're part of my subjective experience, but almost impossible to explain just in terms of the neurological activity. You can map the bits of my brain that light up when I taste salt or hear the sound of a bell, but that doesn't tell you why or how I actually have that experience. And that is often called the hard problem of consciousness. I don't think we really know how to go about even thinking about that, uh, let alone solving it. Or even replicating it, which is what some of our AI technologists and scientists and are all trying to replicate. Yeah, well, they can replicate behavior, mm. maybe decision-making or something like that. But to say what you're replicating is an entity experiencing the redness of red. You know, we can't even agree. If, if I said to you, well, the way I see red is the way you see blue, and there's no way we could compare that. No. Only I know what red seems like to me. You can, you can point to the color red and say, yes, I'm having that red experience. Well, of course. But, but I, I can't 
without being you, can't get inside your head and see the colors in the same way or have those other experiences. And that's the fundamental problem about the nature of consciousness, that it is preeminently subjective. And science is all about objectivity. It's about you and I being able to agree on something out there in the world that we can make predictions about. And if we're talking about our own internal experiences, what it's like to be at home inside me, then it's very hard to see how science can ever really get to grips with that. That's, yeah, I often think if I'm seeing a colour, is that what someone else is seeing? Is that actually, we all know that it's the same, but right. I often think, is it is it blue to them? Like, is that, right. but they just call it red, but you know, I've, and, and yeah, it's really interesting. That you are conscious. So we can have a conversation, you can behave as if conscious, but how do I know you're not a very cleverly programmed automaton that is giving appropriate answers, behaving in an appropriate way? And so if I were to see you walking across the room and uh, lifting up the telephone to answer a phone call, uh, I could imagine that uh, advanced technology could get some sort of completely mindless, zombie-like automaton to uh, appropriately behave in that way. And if you're skeptical, just think for a moment when you drove home from work last night, assuming you did, I did, and then chances are you spend most of that time listening to the radio or thinking about uh, a podcast or something of that sort, uh, and then you ask yourself, well, who was actually driving the car? And the truth is that you do almost all of that stuff automatically, just like when you walk across the room, you know, who was guiding your footsteps. And mm. particularly obvious in cases like playing the piano or playing tennis, when your fingers move much faster than the speed of thought. And so you think you, are, you, the conscious being, are in control of your fingers, but actually you just reconstruct a narrative afterwards. So almost everything we do, we do subconsciously, and we, but we do it well. We, do, we don't say, mm. to, you know, who walk across the room, well, that was amazing they were able to do that. It's, it, we're programmed to do it. We don't have to think about doing it. In fact, if you do think about doing it, chances are you'll stumble. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I've seen some videos on YouTube from, you know, people who work in factories and how they're able to, they're on this conveyor belt and they're talking to each other. They're not even looking at the task at hand and they're able to cut pieces of paper exactly right on the line because they've been doing it for years. It's incredible. So just because an entity behaves as if they are conscious of what they're doing doesn't mean they actually are. Mm, The consciousness puzzle. It really is, isn't it? It certainly is. So what are you working on right now? You've written your book and you're probably onto another one. I don't know, but you're really good at writing them. So what are you working on right now? What's your question? So I'm spread very thinly because I'm very old. (laughs) And so I've been around (laughs) doing science uh, since... uh, the late 1960s when I was a student in London. And my interests have really gone from originally that passion for cosmology, astronomy, astrophysics, through areas concerning black holes and quantum physics and the very early universe into astrobiology as we've been discussing it. And then about 10 years ago, I became involved in uh, cancer research because I was approached by the U.S. National Cancer Institute to 
try to help uh, reconceptualize cancer, to bring a fresh perspective from other sciences. And so mm-hmm. I've been very much involved in cancer research, so I'm doing that. But my only real work, as far as I'm concerned, the only work that I take seriously is actually still the theoretical physics and cosmology. I'm working on a problem just this afternoon with a postdoctoral researcher here at Arizona State University on trying to understand the thermal properties of a universe that expands exponentially fast. And I'm not going to go into the details, but this is a a theoretical physics calculation having to do... Well, what I can say is I think everybody knows about Stephen Hawking, and they probably Mm. know that he predicted, uh, nobody's ever seen it, but predicted that black holes are not really black, but should glow with heat radiation. And uh, that's a prediction from the mid-1970s. I was very much involved in that at the time. And it soon followed that you could also expect there to be thermal properties of a universe that expands faster and faster and faster. And that's Mm. what I'm uh, talking about. And there's some issues about, is that heat real, as it is in the case of black holes, that still interests me today. And I'm working on a calculation to do that. But I'm also working very closely with a colleague, Sarah Walker, on this whole origin of life, what is life, life as information, life as patterns of information flow, and so on. We have quite a big research group here. We've got about a dozen people in total beavering away those problems. So you see, in the morning, it might be uh, the origin of the universe, in the afternoon, the origin of life, and in the evening, the origin of cancer. Oh, my God. I'm interested in the origins of cancer, because once we nail that, we'll be a little bit closer Yes, Um, that's probably the easiest of the lot of all the things that we've been talking about. Uh, So the approach that I've been taking is that cancer is very deeply embedded in the nature of multicellular life. We find cancer in all multicellular organisms across the biosphere, even some very simple ones like, you know, worms or or fungi, even corals show cancer-like symptoms. So cancer is something... Uh, that goes back a long way, I think probably over a billion years. It's something that's hardwired into cells. It's Sometimes I say it's a bit like safe mode on a computer, that if the computer suffers an insult of some sort, it defaults back to its core functionality, starts (laughs) safe mode. And I think Mm. the same, that if cells suffer an insult, some sort of damage, that they default back to their ancient core functionality, and they just run on the on what life was doing one and a half billion years ago. Uh, so it's a reversion to an ancestral form, ancestral mode. And so that's those are the ideas that I've been. Uh, talking wow! About. So I think cancer originated a long time ago. It's not a modern. Mm. It's uh, uh, over a billion years. Do you think we're alone? <laughs> that's a random question to the. Uh, it's that's very curious. When I was a student, I was absolutely convinced that we are not alone, that the universe was teeming with life and that maybe Earth has even been visited by extraterrestrial beings and so on. I thought all that stuff was wonderfully exciting and eminently plausible. And I might as well have expressed a preference for looking for fairies uh, in those days <laughs> because it just about every scientist thought that life was unique to Earth. I think Francis Crick expressed it very well. He said, life seems almost a miracle, so many of the 
conditions are necessary to, for it to get going. And so the prevailing view at that time is that life is immensely complex, could only have happened once, and we are it. And then somehow over the decades, the pendulum swung, and it's now fashionable to say that the universe is teeming with life, that there's nothing special about life on Earth. Why would we think there is? And really, the evidence hasn't changed. We know just as little now as we did back in the 1960s and 70s about how life began, whether it's strewn around the universe. So it's purely fashion. Because I'm a contrarian sort of person, you probably guessed, <laughs> uh, I started out by bucking the trend and saying the universe is teeming with life. Now everyone's saying that. I tend to think, oh, well, you know, you you were sceptical when I was saying this, so why shouldn't I be sceptical now? And so I've actually become more and more sceptical over the years. And so now I would love to believe that we're not alone, but I could easily believe that we are alone. It, it would not be difficult at all to imagine that the transition from non-life to life is so special, so peculiar, it's happened only once in a very large volume of space, for example, as big as the observable universe. If the universe is infinite, of course, then there's life out there somewhere. But within our cosmic neighborhood, I think it's entirely likely that there is no other life. I, that would be a tragedy. It depresses me to think that. I would love there to, to be a lot of life, and I'm a great fan for attempting to look for it. But I can't honestly say I have any sound reasons for supposing that the universe is teeming with life. Hmm. So if the universe was infinite and there's some people who believe that it is. Yeah, it is a big remember. Yeah, well, that's right. So if it is an infinite, then it's almost certain that there is life elsewhere? Absolutely. Is that what you... Uh, absolutely. So if it's infinite and homogeneous, so if it's... Obviously, if it was space was infinite, but all the matter was just clustered into one sort of lump, then that wouldn't be the case. But if, as you travel on beyond the limits of our present universe, the horizon beyond which we cannot see, but if you travel beyond that, and it's sort of much the same galaxies, stars, same sort of density, same conditions, then, of course, they're just a matter of simple statistics. Just like when you have a pack of cards and you shuffle it, you know that if you keep on shuffling, you'll eventually shuffle it back into suit and numerical order. Very small probability, but you know it must happen if you go on for long enough. And in the same way, just rounds of basic mathematics and statistics, you know that if a sequence of events has led to life on Earth, however improbable, if you repeat that experiment an infinite number of times, you're bound to succeed again, and indeed succeed an infinite number of times. It's just that the representatives, the other representatives, of that transition may be very sparsely distributed. It may be that there is an infinite amount of life, but that the nearest life to us is 15 billion light years away. And I really hope that's mm. not the case, but we can't rule it out. And if we were to go ahead in the future, so thinking about technology and how humans are going to evolve, <laughs> I know it's not far, but 50 years, let's go 50 years. What sort of technology or what sort of environment do you think we're going to experience? So you're asking me to engage in futurology, which is, of course, uh, yeah. particularly <laughs> dangerous. There's always that tendency to extrapolate the present trend. And so at the moment, everyone's enthralled of artificial intelligence. We've been talking about that and they imagine, well, 
another 50 years, in another 100 years, imagine what can be done there. We look at the so-called Moore's Law of Information Processing, which says that the speed of processing doubles every 18 months or two years, the cost halves, and that's been true over many decades. Well, imagine if that goes on for another 20 or 30 years, then uh, this will become sort of staggering capability. And now we have reports of, of something called quantum supremacy, that quantum computers have overtaken classical computers. Imagine what sort of world that will unleash. But when I think back to my own childhood, and I used to love to read these futuristic books, and it seemed to me that if you said, well, what's it going to be like in the year 2000? Well, people were going to be getting around. <laughs> I remember. They were flying from place to place with these jetpacks. People regularly go to the moon just on a on a an outing with the family, and they would just get a, a new tank of fuel and fly back again. That there were going to be these uh, enormous buildings with monorails connecting them at the 80th floor, and all that stuff. And well. Some of those things have come to pass, the tall buildings, the monorails, and the and all the motorways that we were, at least living in Britain, were very futuristic at the time. Those things have come to pass. But the real change that has taken place during my lifetime has not been from just extrapolating those trends that were obvious in the 50s. It's come from the information revolution and the whole of information technology has really transformed our lives. And nobody really anticipated that. And so when we think ahead, probably the thing that will be most transformative is the thing that hasn't been invented yet. It, it might be some little bit of technology which doesn't technologically seem very special, but will have a transformative effect on society. And because we don't know what this is, it's really very, very hard to predict. So I think looking ahead more than 20 years, actually, is uh, rather foolhardy. Oh, so you don't have any sort of even oh, something you can imagine that oh, could I exist? <laughs> it's not hard for me to imagine. So one of the things that I've dabbled around in, it's easy to imagine, which is just an extrapolation of current technology, is colonizing other planets. We could go to Mars now, with current technology, we could set up a permanent human base there. It would be sort of expensive and uncomfortable, but we could certainly do it. And I've been an advocate for doing it for really quite some years. So I can imagine in a thousand years, there might be a self-sustaining human colony on Mars. That's easy enough to think about. In terms of the science fiction, you know, will we have a galactic empire or something? I think that's nonsensical. <laughs> I did write a book some years ago called How to Build a Time Machine. And so this is about can we travel in time? And, of course, wouldn't that be good? And, again, we know that we can travel in time. We can travel into the future in a fairly straightforward way that you just need to move. The faster you move, the more you travel into the future. To make a real adventure, a time travel adventure, you've got to move close to the speed of light. We can do that with subatomic particles. We can't do it with humans. But in principle, we could do it. So I can imagine traveling into the future. Traveling to the past is much tougher proposition and would involve something like a wormhole in space. And we don't know that such things are even possible. But if they were, we could travel into the past as well. So I can Im imagine all those things. But 
they would require the resources of a super civilization to carry them out. And so it may never be that we will travel in time in any very serious sense. At the moment, we can do it by microseconds. That's all. Mm. Mm. But if you want to go leap, leap years into the future, you've got to get very close to the speed of light. So all these things are, are possible to imagine. But I still come back to this idea that some aspect of technology or science that we either don't know about or don't consider very important at this time may have a truly transformative effect on society. And it may be that in another 100 years or another 1,000 years, people or our descendants, because it may be that we'll have handed over to some sort of augmented intelligence or artificial intelligence or who knows what, that they will be engaging in activities and having thoughts and discussions which would be incomprehensible to us now. Mm. So all these things are possible. It's really very hard, I think, to predict much in terms of, given our current technology, just extrapolating it. I agree. I've heard a lot of, that's one of the questions that I ask all of my guests at the end, just to hear what your thoughts are. And yeah, most people say it's it's really, really hard to predict because we're, we're moving in so many different directions and so many different technologies and scientific breakthroughs that really there's no way to predict where we're going to be because it's and, and don't yeah. forget that in addition to just the straight science and technology is the whole sociological structure in which they're mm. embedded. And so if you think back over the last few thousand years, there's been the agricultural revolution and then the industrial revolution, and now we're in the sort of robotics AI revolution. And each of these has utterly transformed the whole economic landscape. And so you have to, all of these extrapolations to the future sort of assume that we will have a stable economic and social system that uh, we can implement those changes in some halfway orderly manner and that we the economic system can incorporate them we can bring about those changes in lifestyle and work and all those things without the whole thing collapsing we don't know that's the case the last two great revolutions there were lots of losers as well as winners we can't be sure that we understand society well enough to say that we can just willy-nilly change some basic bit of technology or introduce a new technology and and be sure that it won't be utterly disruptive and cause the whole system to collapse so sometimes i'm just reading the latest book by robert harris called Second Sleep, and uh, this is all about what you you start out reading the book and you think it's taking place in the 14th century, and it turns out it's taking place like 1,400 years after the apocalypse in which modern technological society has collapsed. And of course. Propelled back into a sort of medieval existence, and they've got only the faintest memory of uh, this, uh, the ancients who live before this apocalypse. So there could be some apocalypse and and it may be that humanity is you know is propelled back into the past. I really hope not. I don't expect that, but we can't be absolutely sure that uh, we can just go on adding uh, technological in- innovations and assume that our society can incorporate it in a, a stable and sustainable manner. Well, I don't humans aren't well known for um progressing without a lot of harm so i don't know how much 
I don't expect an apocalypse, but I do worry sometimes that we're not thinking about the whole picture. We're thinking about what we can win with and make money from and compete with against, you know, other people who are developing technology. Right. Almost nobody has a total overview, although Mm. I have to say some of the people that uh, I talk to from time to time, Martin Rees I mentioned already, he's one of the royal, very distinguished uh, cosmologist in uh, Cambridge, and Hugh Price also in Cambridge, the Australian uh, philosopher, Bertrand Russell uh, Professor Philosophy. They have a Centre for Existential Risk, and so they think big about all of the sort of calamities that could ever ever take us and probably a few they haven't thought of as well. So some people do dwell on the big picture and how to avoid these catastrophes, but I think most people uh, go about their daily lives and if they do invent some revolutionary bit of technology, well, it's usually down to uh, appropriate sort of safety regulations and marketing and those types of things, and the knock-on disruptive effect on society, very few people think that through. Uh, no, nobody really thought through. I mean, at the moment, the, the the thing people are talking about is gene editing. I already mentioned it. Mm. It seems great that we have the power to re-engineer life, that we can take uh, defective genes and fix them up. Uh, this has all sorts of promise for creating new types of life forms, but also uh, tackling various diseases, uh, all that's very wonderful. But now it's led to anxieties about germline manipulation and the twins who were born in China a year or so ago uh, that had evidently had their germlines uh, re-engineered in some manner. Things like that, the knock-on consequences could be very profound. So once we unleash technology like this, Uh, We don't quite know where it's going to lead us. And the same thing with AI. I think we all recognize that we're reaching a sort of tipping point at which we have to decide how do we program really intelligent systems to reflect human values. And and the case very close to home, because here in Arizona, the suburb where Arizona State University is located is called Tempe. And this is where Uber and uh, other companies have been testing their self-driving vehicles. And uh, there's been a lot of attention given to, you know, do you program a self-driving car to swerve to avoid a baby and run over 10 nuns? You know, or would you, uh, (laughs) you know, just how many nuns do you run over to save one baby? Um, How do you make those judgments? And, And we all know that we have a sort of intuitive feeling when we're driving of, somehow what is the the right thing to do. But trying to program this into a computer is very difficult. So we can imagine uh, having a heroic attempt in which we embed human values that we might debate and share into the first generation of machines. But once those machines start designing their own subsequent generations and we unleash this sort of open-ended uh, evolution of design systems, can we be sure that those systems will continue to embed human values in perpetuity. If if we came back in a million years and we looked at the 10,000th generation of machines or robots or whatever you want to call them that uh, we created, that they're still going to behave with 
in a human-like manner in terms of human values? I don't think we can. And so we can unleash these technologies, but we don't really know where they're going to lead in the long run. Yeah, I think we should proceed with caution, <laughs> but I, I don't think we are. I just don't think it's it's happening at the moment from what I can see. There's a massive race happening to, um, you know, especially with quantum computing and getting the first real, you know, commercial robot available for families and things like that. It's, it's yes, crazy. I, I think there is this headlong rush. The, the prizes are very great. The benefits mm-hmm. could be very great, but uh, as always, with any new technology, there's downside uh, risk as well. And I don't think many people have really thought through the consequences uh, if, if you imagine this going on for many, many decades. Well, Paul, I think we're at our time. And I mean, I could talk about this forever because it seems to be how all of the conversations end with this AI conversation. But Paul, thank you so much for joining me on Widdishins today. It's been an absolute pleasure. I can't believe we even got to talk about technology and biology and covered the whole broad spectrum of life as well. So thank you so much for joining me. We've done really well. And uh, thank you (laughs) again for your interest. And we covered a lot of topics and maybe I can come back another time and talk about a different lot of topics. Oh, I would love that. I'm going to be putting, rather than a link to a sci-fi book on the site, I'll be putting a link to your book, which I found on all of my sponsors' platform, except for QBD, I think. So, yeah, I'll put it up there and, yeah, I'll talk about it in there. If you need any information about the book, then do let me know. And, well, thank you very much. And as I say, I'd be happy to come back another time. Thank you so much, Paul. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode with Professor Paul Davies. Until next time, please subscribe on whatever platform you're listening on. Stay safe, enjoy the company of your loved ones, and of course, enjoy the rabbit holes.